This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's taken 90 years, but a Rockefeller is coming back to Pueblo. A century ago, the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, CF&I, employed thousands at its giant steel mill in Pueblo and at coal mines across Colorado. John D. Rockefeller Jr. was majority shareholder. He's often blamed for the company's role in one of labor history's most violent chapters, the Ludlow Massacre. But the family's 90-year absence is about to change with a visit and speech Friday by the grandson, philanthropist David Rockefeller Jr. David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan, so much. CF&I was a really powerful force in the state when your grandfather was involved. Its legacy is still strong in southern Colorado, especially because of the Ludlow Massacre, in which 20 people, including women and children, died after CF&I guards attacked and set fire to a union-sponsored tent colony where there were striking coal miners. I wonder how you view that event in history. Well, um, it was a dark and low moment for the family. Of course, I wasn't born yet. I was born in 41. Uh, But it is uh, a well-known event in the family, an event from which my grandfather, John D. Rockefeller Jr., learned a lot, changed a lot of his thinking, and uh, probably passed on a lot of that changed thinking to uh, other members of the family. Including his son and your father, David Rockefeller Sr., who was born the year after Ludlow in 1915. I want to ask you about how it changed your grandfather in just a moment, but it does sound like this has been a story told and passed down from generation to generation. Is that true? It's true, although it really took uh, the publication of the book Titan about my great-grandfather to reinform many members of the family about the whole sweep of family history, uh, beginning with our origins in Germany and going through my great-grandfather's now famous career. So I would say that I didn't grow up with the story, Hmm. but I learned about it when I uh, became an adult. Part of the history, of course, is that protesters marched outside of your grandfather's office in New York City. To what extent do you think that affected him and might have led to the changes in him that you talked about? It was a pivotal point uh, in his life, as I have learned, and probably a moment many of us think, at which he began to differentiate himself from his father and take another course. Uh, So it was not only the so-called massacre itself and the picketers um, who appeared here in New York State, but it was really as he reflected upon the entire event, and of course, especially it seems after he then visited Ludlow some months later, that he began to rethink his own view of labor policies, of what I would call absentee landlordism. Absentee landlordism. Say more about that. Well, one thing that uh, as I've looked more deeply into this in preparation for my remarks was the problem of my grandfather and great-grandfather owning a commanding share of CF&I, 
but not being on the ground, choosing managers over whom they had control as owners, but were not in close contact with them and uh, had not come to the site uh, prior to the massacre. Just a bit earlier, you used the f- turn of phrase "so-called massacre." Is that was that an intentional turn of speech, or uh, or what? Um, well, it it became uh, it it. I'm not suggesting that I don't think that it was a terrible thing, but it it the word "massacre" um, uh, was used and became the the word that really lit the fire under the uh, under the event. That was really my purpose in saying it that way. All right. The violence at Ludlow and uh, the weeks following were a result of a strike by coal miners who wanted safe working conditions, fair pay. After Ludlow, your grandfather created company unions, which appeared to be an effort to replace the United Mine Workers. Uh, looking back, what do you think of those those company-sponsored unions? Well, you can be cynical about company sponsored unions. If they worked, they were certainly a lot better than nothing. And, you know, the whole labor movement was still in an early phase. And there were experiments by management of companies to be the kind of benevolent owners and operators and managers uh, that they aspired to be. And so I, I think it was a very positive impulse, um, not one that ended up being the model for unions, to be sure. What lessons do you think Ludlow holds today? Well, as I've gone back and uh, read more about the history, what's most striking to me is how many issues uh, that existed a hundred years ago still are very much at the forefront of our thinking and our grappling with how to be an effective society. I mean, if you take immigration and immigrant labors, here we are uh, in the beginnings of the Trump administration grappling with uh, what kind of an immigration policy should we have grappling as well with issues of great disparity between the wealthiest and the poorest in the nation. Mm. There are just so many issues that were extant at the time of the Ludlow Massacre that still exist today. We've made a lot of progress, but we are still working on many of those same issues. I imagine that you see that uh, through the lens as well of the Rockefeller Foundation, which was formed in 1913 with a mission to promote, quote, the well-being of humanity throughout the world, uh, that, that many of the issues it tackled then are likely the issues it's tackling today. Do you think that's true? It is. And of course, the Rockefeller Foundation, even from the beginning, was tackling those issues on a global basis, not only uh, within the U.S. And I've just uh, finished a 10-year term as a board member of the Rockefeller Foundation and five years as its chair and got to travel around the world and, uh, of course, confront issues of poverty and unfairness 
disparity of wealth, uh, et cetera, all around the world, Africa, Asia, so forth. Why have 90 years passed since a Rockefeller has visited Pueblo? And and how, f- I don't know if the word is fraught or symbolic, but um, how fraught or symbolic is your visit? Well, I can't answer why. Uh, people from my family have not been there. I received an invitation to come. That's why I'm coming. And I was uh, thrilled to accept it and challenged, frankly, to accept it because I can imagine that it will, to some extent, uh, reopen old wounds in the minds of some in the audience and uh, maybe in in me too. Was the challenge the visit itself? Was it the remarks you're preparing? Talk more about the challenge. Well, I think it's a challenge to go back to a place where the family is known principally for dark deeds as opposed to uh, good deeds and uh, to reflect upon how they happened, what the responsibility of our family was at that time. Um, It's a very different scale, but I was very happy that President Obama went to Hiroshima uh, recently. I think it's very important for all of us, even if we were not personally responsible for dark events, to look at them, to learn from them, to make every effort uh, to see that they're not repeated in the future. And so what do you hope will come from the trip? Well, every trip I make, uh, wherever it may be, I hope to learn. I hope to learn more about the relatives uh, of the people who worked in the mines and uh, for the company. I hope to learn about that part of Colorado and how it's doing today. Uh, We've just completed an election in which the two coasts voted very differently from uh, the center of the country. And even though Colorado, somebody told me it's a purple state, not a red or a blue, uh, but uh, it has plenty of red in it. And I hope to learn from the voices of Coloradans how they're viewing this nation and its relationship to the world, how they're feeling today. You all say Pueblo is a particularly interesting place because after years of being really a, a democratic stronghold, it went narrowly for Trump in the last election. Well, David, thank you for being with us. Thanks very much, Ryan. Philanthropist David Rockefeller Jr. will speak at the Faces of CFNI fundraiser Friday. There are historic photos of his grandfather in southern Colorado at CPRnews.org. As long as the U.S. military has existed, it has made a place for music. Take the Bugle, for example. And the official National March, The Stars and Stripes Forever, is considered one of John Philip Sousa's greatest works. One group that has played this music a lot is the U.S. Air Force Academy Band. And to mark the Air Force's 70th birthday this year, the band commissioned new music. 
CPR's Stephanie Wolf takes us to Peterson Air Force Base near Colorado Springs, where the band rehearses. Don't let the academy part of the United States Air Force Academy band throw you. These musicians are all full-time active members of the service, and their uniforms prove it. We have the same training um, requirements, physical requirements that the rest of the Air Force has. This is Senior Master Sergeant Claudia Weir. We do actually deploy as well. So we are active duty Air Force. We just happen to play clarinet to support the Air Force. Before joining 20 years ago, Weir hadn't given much thought to the Air Force. She had her bachelor's and was finishing her master's in clarinet performance at a major music school. She just wanted to play music. That's how many members of the Air Force Academy Band find their way in. Just like Airman First Class Michael Coletti. A little over a year ago, he had similar aspirations to make a living as a musician. One day I got a call from a friend who said, hey, there's an audition at the Air Force Academy and I think you should send in your materials. Coletti had been freelancing as a percussionist for several years, so he took his friend's advice. I probably had seven different streams of income and that can be fairly tedious over numerous years. And so eventually the opportunity to serve my country and to find stability uh, was actually really a treat for me. It's a rehearsal day here at Peterson Air Force Base. Letty and his bandmate Weir prepare for a tour of Utah and western Colorado. They'll premiere music that commemorates the Air Force's 70th birthday. There are two new works, and one of those is Rust Belt. It's by Orlando composer Christopher Marshall. Captain Shanti Simon is the associate conductor. She says Rust Belt has a blue-collar energy. We're having them play heavier to represent that machine-like, cogging-along kind of feel. Um, There's some very interesting interplay between the trumpets and the steel drums, and percussion is really important. Some say military band music can help people understand the nation's history. Joe Tercero is the historian emeritus with the United States Air Force Band in Washington, D.C. It marks a moment in time, and it defines it in music. Uh, If you listen to all these commissions throughout the years, it shows the progress. Tercero says there were American Air Force bands even before the Air Force broke off from the Army. Inspired by European military bands, the U.S. War Department ordered the creation of nearly 60 Air Force bands in 1941. These bands toured the country, and some went overseas after the nation got involved in World War II. There were also radio broadcasts, like this one. Uncle Sam presents... The band of the AAF Training Command, under the direction of Captain Glenn Miller. And it was famous names like that one that helped the military establish these bands. Historian Joe Tercero says they played an important role in the war. If you take the original mission of Air Force bands, it was to uh, provide music to the um, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and coasties. But it was also to keep the American public informed about what was going on. Today, military bands are part of the recruiting method for the armed forces. The U.S. Air Force Academy band started out back in 1955. Since then, the band has beefed up its touring and is able to get the Air Force message out to more people through things like social media. Randy Dorsch has been with the U.S. Air Force Academy band for decades, first as a musician and now as an administrator. He says the band's roster has decreased. So fewer um, Air Force Academy bandsmen these days than there were in the 1950s. Why do you think that is? I mean, the military is just smaller, too. 
um, has to do with priorities shift and, uh, and also how budgets change. Dorsch says the band accounts for less than 1% of the Academy's annual budget. Senior Master Sergeant Claudia Weir says her 20 years with the band and the Air Force has deepened her love for her country. I think what keeps us in is the sense of patriotism and pride that we have wearing the uniform every day and going around the whole country and the world, really, and playing for veterans. Air Force band members do travel the globe. They serve overseas, performing for deployed troops and at embassies. For now, though, the musicians of the United States Air Force Academy Band are excited to tour the West and share this new music. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. The Academy Band completes its tour, marking the Air Force's 70th anniversary, on Sunday with a performance at Adams State University in Alamosa. Meanwhile, nearly a dozen band members from around the country are serving abroad. Captain Shanti Simon is the band's associate conductor and flight commander. She deployed to Al-Udeed Air Force Base in Qatar last year, serving for six months as a musician there. And uh, Captain, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You have multiple degrees in music and conducting, and you enlisted in the Air Force as a musician about five years ago. So it's not that you were in the military and happened to be a conductor. How much thought Correct. You, yeah, how much thought did you give to the possibility of deployment when you joined? Oh, well, it was certainly a big part of my decision to join the Air Force. Uh, it, it was something I knew I would be doing if I decided to uh, become an officer. And uh, I saw it as a way to serve my country and to really use music in a capacity that it it really is meant for in my mind. So uh, to me, the prospect of deploying was something that uh, I wanted to be a part of. Uh, the capacity it was really meant for. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is um, music has the capacity to bring people together, to break down barriers, to open doors. And in the military, we really get to see that alive in a very real way. Um, certainly in deployment, as we are building relationships with our host nation, host nation partners and with our local communities, uh, music can be a way to connect people in an innate way uh, that sometimes words and language can get in the way. Mm. Almost like music is diplomacy. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I understand that during your deployments uh, to Qatar, the band traveled to Afghanistan and you performed for members of both the U.S. and Afghan Air Forces there had been yes. an insider attack in that area in 2011. A rogue Afghan pilot killed nine Americans who were on the base for a meeting. Uh, can you describe what the mood was like where you were performing? Yes, uh, this was one of the most uh, visceral experiences I had on deployment. We, we traveled to Afghanistan, to Kabul, and we spent a few days on the NATO side of the base where all of the U.S. troops were stationed. And uh, partway through our visit, we had the opportunity to go to the Afghan side. And 
that is where the, the U.S. forces are actively engaged with training and assisting the Afghan Air Force to be able to protect and defend their own country. Mm-hmm. And it's a very important mission. So we, we had a chance to go over and visit and, and see that. But the mood, as you mentioned earlier, uh, because of this insider attack in 2011, uh, both sides expressed to us, the Afghans and the Americans, that they're still scared to come to work. They're still afraid of one another. And um, that really hit me uh, in a real way just to see that, to be there where this happened. And so we did a concert for the American troops and our coalition partners and the Afghan Air Force. And through the course of our performance, you could see the mood shift. You know, the room started out with all the Afghan pilots and Air Force members on one side and the coalition troops on the other. Mm. And through the course of the performance, people started to talk to one another and to uh, to connect and, and open in a, in a different way. And uh, so our performance was about 45 minutes. We stayed for at least an hour after that, taking pictures with the Afghan Air Force. And they, you know, everyone had their phones out and it was just a very positive um, engagement. What did you play that day? Yeah, so the the band that was out there with me uh, was Galaxy from Travis Air Force Base. And they're a a pop music ensemble that does all kinds of top 40 hits. (laughs) So a lot of American music actually was played during that time. And um, everyone really enjoyed the music. What kind of conversations were going on afterwards? You say there was a lot of... Uh, you know, taking of photos. What did you hear in the room? Yeah, lots of smiles, pictures, uh, and all around. I mean, I was there as the officer in charge, so I wasn't performing. Uh, But uh, I met a lot of the officers in the Afghan Air Force, and they were just so thankful, just touched that we took the time to just take the focus off, off what was going on and just get to know one another in a different way. And, uh, all of the musicians had individual conversations with uh, the coalition partners and the Afghan Air Force, and it really, it, it was all very positive. What would you say to someone who sees music in the military as um, you know, superfluous or as not the wisest use of money? Sure. Well, that's something that we hear a lot and that we sort of battle every day, right? Hmm. Um, Sort of arts in in our country. But I think, you know, we like to see our mission as the other talon of the eagle on the great seal of the United States, the one that clutches an olive branch rather than the arrows of war. And in a sense, that balances the might of a powerful air force with that diplomatic option of winning friends and influencing people. And that's where music and public affairs and that side of the military is really important and can have a meaningful impact on our mission and what we're trying to accomplish in the world. You are armed and not just with an instrument, correct? You're, you're armed <laughs> with firearms. In, in the deployed environment, yes, the band is armed where it's appropriate to be armed. Yes. How is that to so juggle? It, 
<laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, certainly if you're playing a guitar and, you know, you you have a a firearm strapped to your leg, there's some logistics with that, but always the priority is safety and keeping control of our weapons. So the band handles it with great poise. I'm curious about the second part of your title. So it makes sense that you're associate conductor. Why are you also flight commander? What what does that mean? Yeah, so in the Air Force, a flight refers to a group of people. So we have a squadron, which includes all 60 members, and then that squadron is broken down into flights. And so I am the sort of the second in charge. And so I'm in charge of that smaller group, the flight. One more kind of procedural question. Could you become a general? That is to say, have there been musicians <laughs> who've reached the, the highest ranks in the Air Force? Sure. So uh, in order to do that, a musician would have to get out of the career field of music. Uh, there are no general billets for band officers. Hmm. So the highest that we can go in the band career field is colonel. And then there, I think historically there have been some who have gone that path where they've gone into public affairs uh, and other areas where they could become a general in that case. Has the band, the U.S. Air Force Academy band, lost members in in battle? Not that I am aware of. Hmm. So do you mostly feel safe when you're deployed, or have there been moments of real vulnerability? That's an interesting question. Um, I would say that I mostly did feel safe because the the commander's who are leading that effort in that area of the world are very concerned about troop safety. And so they do everything in their power to ensure that bands and everyone who's traveling in that region uh, are as safe as possible. So overall, I did feel safe and that my safety was a concern. Yeah. Uh, but there were certainly moments here and there where there's differences in culture and you may be, you know, the bands would go off base uh, quite a bit to because part of our job is to go into local communities and play at schools and to try to create a more positive image of the United States in that area of the world. So being off base sometimes, yeah, I would say I felt a little bit vulnerable. That is Captain Shanti Simon, flight commander and associate conductor of the United States Air Force Academy Band. And that's Colorado Matters for today on listener-supported Colorado Public Radio, produced by Shauna Lewis and Stephanie Wolf. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.